Well, as Laura said, I'm Juana Widener. I went to Tech for six years, got my bachelor's and my master's here in English and Political Science, and then served two years as an intern at Wesley from 2016 to 2018, and then I tried to stay involved the past couple years in various ways. Um, Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crush him. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. He went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went about among the village teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place would not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed all that, should, that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the Gospel of the Lord. So about this time last year, uh, Ryan invited me to preach as well, and I preached on the latter portion of John 1, and the role that seeing plays in our relationship with Christ, and the invitation that Christ offers us to come and see, to know Him for ourselves. I found it interesting as I began preparing for this sermon, first, that this year's series is Knowing Jesus, 
and next, that the same sorts of phrases and ideas jumped out at me, even as I went into the scripture with this different frame, this frame of knowing Jesus as the theme that you guys have been studying this year. I found that word pain in verse 13 jumping out at me. And as I reflected on the questions around which Ryan shaped his sermon last week, these questions of, what is it about the Pharisees that keeps them from knowing Jesus? What's the obstacle to relationship? I saw the answer in that short, simple statement in verse 13, and they came to him. They come to Christ. Not in the salvific sense we normally mean when we talk about coming to Christ when we're talking about somebody's salvation. Though I'm sure we can say that the apostle's salvation is somehow bound up in this moment where they come to him, where they respond. But I mean to say that they come to Christ in a literal sense. Jesus calls them over, and they come over. It seems so simple that I almost dismiss the thought. How does this equal knowing Christ or having a relationship with him? Now, interestingly enough, Christ goes on in verse 14 to state that one of his reasons for calling them was, in fact, to be with him, to be in a relationship with him. But if it's simply a matter of approaching Christ or being where he is, the Pharisees are always doing that. This chapter begins with them right there, right next to Christ, honestly in the way. But we know from Ryan's sermon last week, and pretty much everything we're taught about the Pharisees ever, that they've not really come to Jesus, salvifically or relationally. They don't want his salvation and they don't want his relationship. They aren't moved by God, Ryan said. So they come to him not to be with him or proclaim the message or cast out demons, as with the apostles. Instead, they come with their own purposes of accusing him and destroying him. So how about those with the unclean spirits in verses 11 and 12? who know so much of who Jesus is that they not only come to him, but, very unlike the Pharisees, they fall down before him, shouting, You are the Son of God. They clearly know who he is. So how is this not it? How is this not what it means to know Jesus? Well, as James tells us later on in the New Testament, it's not as significant a thing as we might think for the demons to believe in him. And they, unlike the Pharisees, and honestly unlike us, tremble at the thought. Yet neither is this knowing sufficient. In fact, Jesus commands the unclean spirits not to make him known, which goes in direct opposition to Jesus' second reason for calling the apostles to himself. He calls them so that they can go out and proclaim the message. The unclean spirits may know who he is, but they don't know him. I probably know who the majority of the people in this room are, but if we've not spent time together, sat down across the table, done anything together, walked together, shared life together, I don't know you. I may know who you are, but I don't know you. So even here, there's still something in this interaction between Christ and the unclean spirits that doesn't show us what it means to know Jesus. Yet there is something in these moments where we view the apostles that shows us what it is to know Jesus. So how do these glimpses of the apostles reveal that to us? They are presumably part of the crowd of disciples mentioned in verse 7. We hear that Jesus goes out and there's disciples with him, so they're probably among them. And so they're already near to Christ in some fashion. But we don't see them or hear about them in any significance until verse 13. They're not chasing after Christ. They're not the crowds who are grabbing at his guard, begging to be healed. And they certainly aren't prostrating themselves on the ground before him like the unclean spirits. So what is it about these apostles then? I think these glimpses reveal that their responsiveness to Jesus is an integral part of what it means to know him and how we come to know him. Verse 13 says that Jesus called to himself those whom he wanted, and that they came to him. And it is only after coming to him that the apostles are with Christ, and it's only after coming to him that we are with Christ. 
to know him and to know his life, and to know ourselves called to that same life. In their hardness of heart, the Pharisees lacked this responsiveness, this desire to come to Jesus rightly and not with schemes. But we see in the beginning of Mark 3 that Jesus desires them, and that's perhaps more apparent to me here than it is in any of Christ's other interactions with the Pharisees. So we always see, we just did a study in my Sunday school class until recently on the New Testament, and I just spent past about a year and a half reading straight through it. And it's like every time I see the Pharisees, they're kind of over here, and they're plotting how to kill him, or they're waiting for him to do something so they can accuse him. And we see that right here in the beginning of Mark. And they wanted to frame him, and they plotted how to destroy him. So this is always how we see with the Pharisees. Um, and most of the time, Jesus doesn't respond. He's kind of like vaguely aware that they're there, and he's kind of, you know, vaguely annoyed. But he ignores them because he's got business to tend to. And so he just lets them hang out over here until a Pharisee or a scribe asks him a dumb question and he's like, alright, I'll respond. But generally they're just back here, they're relegated to the background. But this time Jesus responds. We see in Mark 3 that Jesus desires them. We know that Jesus wants the Pharisees because he tries to reason with them this time. He doesn't ignore them. Do you ever try to explain yourself to somebody you don't want or care to know you? Is that... I mean, if you, don't, if you don't care what people think about you, you're probably not going to spend your time with them, right? You're going to go about doing your business, doing what you were doing before, and they were there, and after they're there. And most of the time, this is the same disposition Jesus has. He cares about them, but he knows that their thoughts are just spent toward corrupting and getting in the way of his mission and killing him. And so he has stuff to do, and that's what he's worried about. He's worried about the people who do want him. So he says nothing to them to engage them. But this time, he does. And it's interesting that this time that he engages the Pharisees is right next to the first time that we see him engaging the twelve, the apostles. Jesus responds to the unasked question harbored in the hard hearts of the Pharisees. The scripture says he looks around at them in anger and was grieved at their hardness of heart. He was angry at them. And partly he was probably angry because they keep trying to frame him and kill him. But I think he's angry because he wants them. And in their hardness of heart, they just won't come to him. He keeps calling them and they simply won't come. You don't reason with people you don't want. I, my sinfulness, am first of all, guilty of not wanting people, and that's not something I see Christ all, and so I know that that's not how I should be. There should never be somebody who I don't want to reach out to, to know to be in a relationship with, and to see as worthy of all those things. But beyond that, so first I don't want people, and then if I finally do do the right thing and go to the people I don't want, I'm too glad for any excuse to give up on them. So if I call and they don't answer, it's like perfect, great, now I don't even have to try a second time. I did my job, and they didn't answer, and so I'm done. And with nuance and righteousness and not sinfulness, and to a certain degree, that is true, that we call, and if people don't answer, we walk away. We see that in Mark 6, Jesus tells the apostles to shake off the dust of any place that doesn't receive them in the message they bear. He says, shake off the dust and go to the next place. We see that in Acts as well, when the disciples are going out. Um, we see that Paul says that, and he says, your blood be on your own head, so a step further. So there's something to that. But in Mark 3 and 6, we see that there are none whom Jesus doesn't want, none he doesn't call, whether they'll refuse him or not. He tells the disciples that people will reject them. That's why he gives them instructions on what to do. He knows that the Pharisees are interested in nothing other than his instruction, but he still engages them. So we know that Jesus wants the people even when he knows they don't want them. Um, and so the distinction is not between those who aren't called and those who are called, but instead the distinction is those who go out and go away from him and those who come to him. And so as we read these passages of Jesus appointing the twelve and the twelve on mission, the life these apostles live with Jesus reveals a little further that what it means to know Jesus is to be with him, to know his life and to know that we are called to that same life. 
Verse 14 says that Jesus called the disciples first to be with him. This is Christ's first stated purpose for why he calls these men to himself, to have a relationship with them and share life with them. The rest comes after. The healing and proclaiming is after that. And perhaps the rest can't even happen without this first moment of them being with him and being in a relationship and sharing life. Because Jesus commands the demons who don't know him and share life with him, he commands them not to make him known. And that's the very thing that he's sending the apostles out to do in chapter 6. So there must be something to the relational aspect of our life with Christ that means we need to be with him and abide with him before we are ready to go out and do the work that he calls us to do. So it's the, it's the same thing we see modeled here. Um, I was an intern for two years. I've been at the Wesley for over seven years. So I'm very rehearsed and well-versed in the, hey, do you want to hang out? You know? <laughs> and some people who know kind of the, the patterns who are like, oh, you just want to hang out because you need some money to do something. You know, you just want to be my friend because you need me to do this thing. And we do need people. That's true. But when we ask you to hang out here, we're asking you to hang out because we want to be with you. And because we want to know you and we want to share life with you. Because that's what we see Christ model with the apostles and with us. And that's the relationship that we see within the church is its relationship. It's being with one another. Acts 2 all over, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer and fasting and teaching the scriptures. All that communal stuff. Um, it gets more where they're selling their houses for one another. They're sharing life with one another. And that's what Christ does first. He sees that as so important. That's the first thing he does after appointing the twelve is to be with them. So, Christ is relational. And that's the first thing he revealed. And his dispositions were the apostles. And he is relational and he always has been relational. He's been relational since the beginning when he was the word with God the Creator and the Spirit hovering over the waters. They were there in relationship, the three together. God was in relationship with Adam and Eve since the beginning when he walked in the garden with him and shared life with him. And God has been relational and has been calling after us and calling us to come in since the fall. We've been hardening our hearts and hiding our trees. And he's just calling out to us and asking us to come to him and be with him. So the apostles know Jesus by being with him. We see next the apostles know Jesus by knowing and sharing his mission. Jesus calls the apostles to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So now, Jesus is asking them to agree to LPL to set up tables and chairs and to run sound and all the nitty-gritty stuff of ministry, you know, the hard thing to ask. He's asking them to not only be in his life, but to participate in his life. And how do we participate in the life of Christ except by doing the ministry of his life? The apostles come to know Jesus because their very life imitates the life of Christ, a life of relationship, evangelism, and healing. What it means for them and us to know Christ is to know that his calling is our calling, that we are not only to be with him, but to be like him as well. We so often think ourselves nothing like the Pharisees, and I think Brian touched on this in his sermon. So we, just, we read, and I, I mean, every single one of us in my young adult Sunday school group talked about it. As, as we're reading these passages, we see the Pharisees over here like these idiots. Like, how do they not know? Well, number one, how do they not see themselves right now? Like, they look ridiculous. And number two, how do they not see Jesus right there doing the thing that they've been reading about the scriptures and that they've been memorizing and hearing read over them and standing for hours and hours and hours as people read and prophesied about the very person and God in front of them? Like, how do they not know? I would never make that mistake. I certainly wouldn't try to kill him, like, at least. Like, I'll have, like, a healthy disposition of, like, distance for him. He can be weird over there. But, like, I'm not going to kill the guy. You know, and that's what we think. We think it's so often and it's so easy and it's so natural for us to go there and separate ourselves utterly from the Pharisees. Um, you know, and they're, they're educated and they're righteous, and yet they're so wrong and so blind. 
but we are just as susceptible to, and we are just as skilled at, putting on the mere trappings of discipleship, as Ryan talked about. They fashion and wear their discipleship in authentic-looking enough ways until the moment comes when something truly tests or exposes the strength of their relationship with Christ or exposes the lack thereof. We're just as good at doing this as the Pharisees are, and we're really proud of it, too. We talked about this in hot summer nights as we discussed confession, how we've taken this thing and we know the language of Christianity, we know the right ways to say the thing that we did wrong so that it doesn't really feel that wrong and we're in the right for saying it in the first place. And we've gotten really good at doing that and talking the language. And we've taken this thing that will lead us to repentance and lead us to God, and we've distorted it in our hardness of hearts. And so we see in Mark 3 that the Pharisees are doing the same thing. They've taken the very person of Christ, and they've distorted him and his message in their hardness of hearts. And so we see that the Pharisees are experts in the trappings of discipleship. And we see this in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their needs to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues, and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and to have people call them rabbi. So this whole past, and then it goes on to the woes. What do you mean Pharisees and scribes hypocrites? Because like, you know, on it, so it gets worse than that, and then the throats are open grace. So it's like, you know, if we keep going, it just gets worse and worse, and then we're going to stop it. So there's plenty there to unpack. This whole, this whole passage that we just read, Matthew 23, 1 through 7, is Jesus pointing out the ways that the Pharisees wear all these things that are not Christ, that are not his righteousness, not the armor of God, and all these things that we list that we're supposed to wear and put on. They don't wear any of that. But they just wear the trappings of righteousness and the trappings of a relationship with God and the trappings of discipleship. They don't practice what they preach, so much so that they are not even to be imitated as rabbi in the synagogues. And then, you know, just like the phrase, do as I say, not as I do. We've all heard that, right? I think Katie told that to me on the first time in Haiti. So if you don't know anything about Haiti, you know that the water's not good. You shouldn't drink it if you're not from there. Um, and so we stay in this guest house on this small, in a small village off the mainland um, called Susa Philippe. And we have not good water there, um, running through the faucets and through the shower. And so we're supposed to use bottled water to brush our teeth because the bottled water they give us is clean, it's sterilized, it comes from those big chuck jugs that goes blow blow until we know it's safe. And so I'm brushing my teeth with Katie one morning, and this is like her tenth time being there, so it's kind of different. My first. And she runs her toothbrush under the faucet, and you know, being me, knowing everything, I go, Hey, I thought we weren't supposed to drink the water because it's not clean. And she goes, do as I say, that as I do. I was like, okay. So, I would say that if she were here, it's not me, I don't know she's not here. Um, and I'm sure she remembers the story. But we've heard that phrase, do as I say, not as I do. Just because you see me not doing what I'm supposed to do doesn't mean you have an excuse not to do what you're supposed to do. And that's just not biblical. And a Pharisee probably came up with that and it's just been passed down from the church to now, so we have it today. And so Jesus offers all these images in Matthew 23 of the ways that the Pharisees show their devotion, but they only do it in the sight of man and only in extravagant, almost gaudy ways, and only when it costs them nothing. Jesus talks about broad phylacteries. Who knows what a phylactery is? Okay, well, go. It's like the, the chess piece that they wore with all the precious stones on it. Okay, go. 
which is like the, the, the Thanos breastplate, but I'll just do it. So yes, it's the thing that keeps your scripture. So, Nicole talked about flattery's one time, and it was very educational for me because I never knew what that meant. Um, so yes, there are these small boxes that one, and one goes on the forehead, and one is held on with a band, and then one goes on the left forearm, and it has this leather band inscribed with scripture that wraps all the way up the forearm, and it's worn during morning prayer, and it's supposed to be a reminder to keep the law, yes. And so it's very visible, very obvious, very much a thing that the Pharisees would be into wearing, just because. And so, since we don't have really phylacteries going on in this group, I don't think, um, it'd be kind of like if somebody were in the prayer room before Friday morning Eucharist, and they strapped a Bible to their forearm, like one of those small, like, mini green Psalms and Proverbs, they strapped it to their head, to their forearm, and they came praying out, just like, just heavy with the weight of their desire to pray and their devotion to God. Um, it could also be like a gold cross necklace, like a bedazzled one that's really big, the ones that are like about gay, um, which people don't do so much anymore, so that's more my generation. So then I tried to think of relevant examples for you people. And so I think, um, he is greater than I t-shirts that people wear in the bumper stickers, um, or like in Protestants or religions, anything like that. Flaggers. And so then we go to fringes. Their fringes are long. And so fringes were these blue tassels tied to the garment. They're supposed to be one tied to each corner of the garment that serve as a reminder of God's commandments. And so there's, it's just this blue ornament. So it's like, if I, this is my rabbi's robe, and I have one here and one here and one here and one here. And I just have these fringes dragging me around. Which we still don't really have. And so I thought if somebody were to string a bunch of um, WWJD bracelets together, <laughs> And they're just trailing the ground with the weight of devotion and the desire to keep God's commandment. So just imagine that person walking around. We may have seen this person. I'm not sure. Um, but that's that's what the Pharisees were into. They were very much into knowing that they were rabbi, um, that they were deeply devoted. And so even though we have these kind of unique examples, um, I still kind of wanted to bring it a little closer to us because I think there's still a little bit of a cultural disconnect. Um, and so if we were to contextualize this passage from Matthew 23 to the Wesley, it might read something like this. The small group leaders in discipleship team force rocket chart sit on staff seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They make rare requests for events hard to fulfill and lay them on the shoulders of staff, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to help set up. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their engagement list broad and their spontaneous worship long. They love having the place of honor as Ryan and Katie's hangouts and to be greeted by everyone in the front room and to have people call them Christian. So, that's what that might look like for us. And obviously, I'm not knocking you if you have a big engaged group because that's really awesome and actually that's really healthy and that's a sign that you're doing something great. Um, so there's nothing inherently wrong with a big engaged group. And I'm all for spontaneous worship. I come from a culture of spontaneous worship. And I think, obviously, that the Spirit moves and that He invites us to participate in that movement and to be bursting in the song and praise and dancing and singing. Um, and so none of those things are bad. But I think in the same way that we talked about the language of confession, we all know that there's a language that we speak when we're doing these things, whether it's here at the West or in our churches, where we dress a certain way and we come to church and we highlight our Bibles and we have the good CP10 Instagram filter kind of like this way. 
And we do these things in the sight of man, to be seen by men, instead of praying in the closet, which is what we're called to do. We do these things to be seen. And we do these things to be seen as devout, and to be seen as disciples. But if the people in your engaged groups, the city that keeps the community worship, can only follow your words and not imitate you as you imitate Christ, that's a clear sign, according to Christ in Matthew 23, that you're not imitating him, and that you may not even know him, but only know of him. You may be standing off to the side, actually, never engaging him in a sincere way, never coming to him when he calls you, never having a relationship with him, never living the life you were called to live. If we just suppose this image of the Pharisees in Matthew 23 with our second passage in Matthew 6, the 12 hour mission, we see again what is illumined for us by these apostles, these true knowers of Christ, about what it means to know Christ. We find them here preparing to go on mission, to proclaim the message and to cast out demons with Christ's authority. And here's where we note the distinct difference.
is that to know Jesus is to know his urgency for the proclamation of his message and the healing of his people, whether it's from demons and unclean spirits or from our own heart hearts. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus himself is baptized in verse 9, and then he hits the ground running. He has 40 days in the wilderness, and immediately he's out. John the Baptist is arrested, and he's already proclaiming the word in the streets of Galilee. And that's five verses later, 40 days. He takes a retreat. And then he immediately begins calling his disciples and healing, which are the same things you see him doing here in Mark 3 and 6, and the same things you see him commissioning the apostles to go do. He doesn't have time for the Pharisees and their schemes, yet here in this passage he takes time because the very thing his time is geared toward is bringing people like them into a relationship with himself so that they might know him. He's on mission to the whole world, yet he takes time to be with just 12 men, his mission team, so that they might know him and know his mission and be strengthened before they're sent out to all corners of the world. And as soon as they are told, they go, proclaiming that all should repent. And they cast out many demons and anoint them with oil, many who are sick, and they cured them. He called to himself those whom he wanted, and they came to him. How many of us, when Jesus called us, have stood off to the side, heart to heart, yet somehow even with our hard hearts, we're so in love with, in love with ourselves and our own image? So done up and dressed up in the trappings of our discipleship that we can't even recognize the very splendor of the humility of Christ in front of us. We're dead to his call to come, and we instead desire to be not with him with ourselves, to proclaim our own distorted message, trying desperately to hear ourselves under our own authority. How many of us tonight can begin to hear his call, not the risk of losing all that we've built up for and around ourselves, not the risk of losing all the things we've packed and taken with us in our bag, not the risk of ending up in the street with nothing, with nothing but the clothes on our backs and the dust on our feet. But instead, hearing his call, the chance to be built up by Christ, the invitation to join him in his mission, the faith to take nothing with you on that mission, the power and authority and confidence to proclaim his message and heal his people and shake off that dust, to hear his call and come to him and be with him and know him. My prayer for us tonight is that we will begin to hear his call. And that we will be among the ones who came to